Walter Balpin, Timo DeBrass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance. the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Is what he endeavors to do. Of particular note this week, a trade has occurred. A trade has occurred between uh, Arizona Diamondbacks and Atlanta Braves. It sends Bronson Arroyo, but uh, most significantly Bronson Arroyo's contract to Atlanta in addition to the D-backs first round pick from last year, Tuki Toussaint. What does that reveal? Not only about Tuki Toussaint, but prospects and prospect valuation. Dave Cameron comments. Upon that, as well as to what degree we ought to assume that the D-backs are rational actors. Rational actors. Furthermore, Chris Young appears to exert uh, no little influence over batted balls. How is he doing it? Is it possible that we might uh, be able to identify another pitcher who does something like that? What is the key skill? Finally, some brief comments about Henley Ramirez, Pablo Sandoval, their uh, present and, more relevantly, their future with the Boston Red Sox, Jose DiBata, Max Scherzer, for the uh, Also, uh, from this uh, edition of the program, um, we hear Dave Cameron recite the inspirational Latin motto that appears on his family's crest. Uh, we're going to do what it takes in order to not die. Fangraphs Audio features managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Well, you just had to it's hit it an odd number of times. It's totally random. <laughs> is any Cameron? Is anything totally random? Yes, the no. mute button on this microphone. It's the most random of all things. It's the most random. Is anything? Wait, is anything? That's a broad question. Is anything totally random? Is anything totally random? Well, if you had a perfectly neutral dice that was fifty-fifty, then the results of those coin flips. Or dice rolls or whatever yeah. would be would be completely random. It would be completely random. If you have a uh, random number generator in your computer, and if you have a spreadsheet, you probably do. That's theoretically completely random as long as they coded it well. What is it? How do they code that? Just say a number. They tell it say a number. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think there's probably just like I, mean, I am not a coder, so I can't say exactly what script they write, but they basically just uh, create a program that will mathematically. Uh, Pick out numbers at random and, uh, you know, yeah. I, maybe ask a coder how they write that. What, uh, I don't know. What religious traditions believe that nothing is random? Is there any of those? Are there any of those? Are there people who think that nothing is random? I don't know. Wait, are there people? Well, I know that. Is that what you're asking? Are there, I guess, are there traditions? Because I know, like, so for example, in Calvinism, right? Calvinism, there's a, um, well, at least the way I understand it, predestination is a thing that exists, right? So when you were yeah. born, your future... You're either part of the select or you're not. But you're I don't not. think that, that that applies to every... Moment. Uh, ...aspect of your life. Like, I don't think in Calvinism they're saying, like, the, the outcome of a coin flip is predetermined. They're just saying whether a specific person or not was going to end up, you know, in heaven or hell was predetermined. What's the current state? Which sucks for people who are predetermined and not. Yeah, my, my, my understanding from the field of neuroscience currently is that there are questions about the degree to which free will actually exists. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting question, not just in neuroscience, but also in like economics, right? Is like, uh, which is, you know, kind of the, the thing that I studied, so maybe of more interest to me than, than neuroscience, because I don't understand neuroscience as well. <laughs> but I think there's a decent amount of evidence that shows you can get people to do almost anything if you align the incentives highly enough. Like, you know, people say, oh man, I have free will, I would never, you know, uh, rob. And then you take away all of their money and you put, you know, uh, access to food in front of them with no security and you tell them, well, this isn't yours. If you take it at stealing, they're going to steal. They're going to steal, right. So you could, well, so yeah. that, so in some ways that's sort of, uh, gauging the outputs of what might be occurring, um, on the, inside the brain, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Like I think at the, at the end of the day, we're mostly, not entirely, but mostly rational beings who want to survive. And so if we, if the, uh, incentives are aligned, uh, we're going to do what it takes in order to not die. Hmm. You know, actually this question of, uh, of reason and whether it exists in every people and everyone might be relevant to uh, a question I have for you about the Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, yes, this seems like an interesting segment. Yeah. I'm excited to hear it. Um, are the, to your mind, are the Diamondbacks are they are they behaving as rational actors? Well, so we've read I've read your piece, but let's we can yeah. people can read it. It's available on the internet, which I assume they have, if they're listening to the program right now. Um, uh-huh. uh, you say this. You say you probably guess that in a sort of generic way, generic by generic measurements. Tuki Tucson is probably worth about $20 million, right? Yeah, something Because like he was, yeah. what, at the back end of a bunch of top 100 lists. He was a first-round yeah. draft pick, et yeah. cetera. Um, on the other hand, a research by Matt Sports, you point out, shows that teams that trade away uh, prospects um, or prospects who have been traded away by their drafting clubs, t- those prospects or those players generally, right, they tend to underperform their projections. Yeah, it's not just prospects. It's like basically they kind of think of it as the Josh Hamilton situation, right? Like uh, the Rangers knew more about Josh Hamilton's uh, issues with substance abuse than anybody else, and they also knew how good he could be. They'd seen it firsthand, and they ha- they had to weigh the risks and rewards of re-signing Josh Hamilton, and uh, they let him go to the Angels, and uh, it worked out very poorly for Anaheim, and now they've taken him back at a dramatically reduced price. Uh, but this was an example probably where the Rangers knew – more than everybody else, and the market was bidding out of ignorance, and the Rangers said, you know, based on our knowledge and the information asymmetry that's in play here, this price doesn't make any sense given the risks well, that's, that Does we that mean you should evaluate. never acquire a player from another team? Yeah, that's one of the tricky things, right, is it leads to a little bit of circular reasoning where you can follow this path down the, the – follow this logic down the path and say, okay, if every player who leaves – uh, we just default to the team who didn't sign them, then no free agent signing can ever be good <laughs> because the free agent, the, yeah, the, the original team didn't, uh, de- decide to match that price, uh, and they have more information. But that's obviously not true. I mean, I think we've seen lots of examples of free agent contracts working out just fine where the original team either just didn't have the money or they had another player at the position that they thought they were higher on, uh, or they just made a misevaluation. I think it was a, a you know, uh, we can say there's information asymmetry without assuming that the original owner has all the information. They might have slightly more, and it might make the the odds uh, slightly better that a you know in this case like the Diamondbacks might know a little bit more about Tuki Toussaint, and maybe instead of a 90% failure rate, he's really a 95% failure rate. Like they might move the needle a little bit, but we shouldn't know. We shouldn't assume that the D-backs know the future. They're not soothsayers. They just know a little bit more. Does it make sense when trading and or signing a free agent? Do you think it makes sense for a club? To consider 
the um, the the original club's motivations for letting that player go? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I think like uh, if I, we're gonna look at this last offseason, maybe the one transaction that should have been the most obvious other people's players' red flag was Matt Kemp, right? Because uh, the the Dodgers were contenders; they were trying to build a good team. Uh, they uh, had just watched Matt Kemp have a career revitalization in the second half, where he was one of the best hitters in baseball. Uh, right-handed power was like the most coveted. Uh, you know, expensive aspect to buy this winter. And so the Dodgers had a, you know, 30-year-old uh, slugging outfielder coming off a monster second half, and they did not want him. And uh, then it turned out that, you know, through the medicals, he had arthritic hips. And uh, you have to think this was an example of where the Dodgers knew something about Matt Kemp's health and future and wanted to get rid of him uh, and take advantage of kind of the, the fact that this was going to be their best opportunity to sell high on Kemp before his value crashed. Uh, that should have been the most obvious warning sign is when a contender does not want a player who looks to be one of the best right-handed hitters in the league and is trying to pay him to play for one of their competitors. Right, and alternatively, it seems to me like if you're getting, uh, if you're attempting to acquire a player who either has reached free agency after playing with Tampa Bay or Oakland, for example, uh, or, the, right. or you're trading with them, you know, you can assume that, you, you can assume that probably it's largely financially motivated. Yeah, I mean, I think that we could probably take Matt Swartz's analysis and go a little bit deeper if we wanted to, if, especially if we had access to payroll information, you know, relative to um, that player's expected salary. Like Johnny Cueto, I think, is a pretty good example right now. Like Cincinnati Reds would probably love to keep Johnny Cueto. Johnny Cueto's a really good pitcher, but they're going to trade Johnny Cueto uh, in a month or let him leave as a, free, as a free agent at the end of the year. Uh, there's almost no chance Johnny Cueto will be back in Cincinnati next year. It's not because they know that Johnny Cueto is not good. It's they just can't afford him. They've already given a whole bunch of money to Homer Bailey and Brandon Phillips and Joey Votto, and uh, they're they're broke. They're they're out of money. They don't have enough room to pay Johnny Cueto. Uh, so this is not an example of you know the Reds having better information. They just have less money, and so there are times when you say, okay, you know, uh, this free agent left that city because of financial reasons. And I think there's other situations, maybe with it, like John Lester last winter, the Red Sox needed pitching. They had a lot of money. They liked John Lester an awful lot, and they wouldn't match the Cubs' price. Uh, you know, it's worked out fine for the Cubs so far, but I think this might be an example of, you know, a big market team uh, with some information saying, we don't think this risk is worth it. Uh, or you could look at their decisions to acquire Henley Ramirez and Pablo Sandoval and just say maybe the Red Sox didn't know what they were doing last winter. Is there a, I want to ask you about that later because uh, actually Matt Corey wrote, uh, wrote for the site today about uh, a hypothetical trade um, involving those two players. But, uh, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, are, there, are there teams oh, – so what, like, for example, what the Dodgers did, right, <clears throat> with the Matt Kemp situation. Is there – I mean, should we entertain the possibility – um, or is it even more obvious than that that there is uh, there is an, there are ethical questions to be asked of these sorts of moves? Uh, you know, if you know, like if you say if the, the team like the Dodgers or the, the Dodgers actually know more about Matt Kemp's health, for example, uh, is it is it unethical for them to sell him even if it is a you know for um, you know not pennies on the dollar but uh, something less than one to one ratio? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, so you're not allowed to basically withhold or lie about medical information. So if you know that your guy needs Tommy John surgery, you can't be like, yeah, he's fine. And then like send him a fake MRI that shows that his elbow, like it's someone else's elbow right. or it's his other elbow or something. Like you, you can't do that. Uh, that's unethical and against the law or against MLB's rules. If you're caught doing that, the league will void the trade. This has actually happened before, uh, where teams have traded damaged goods and the league just undoes the trade and says you don't get to do that. Um, but I think if it's, uh, you know, a matter of interpretation, which a lot of these health question marks are going to be, and you know, obviously projecting future performance uh, is is certainly open to interpretation. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, you know, what we feel like we have some extra information here that we have, uh, you know, it's pr- proprietary research or things that we've uncovered just you know through the um, the benefit of owning a player, and we don't get to know that every other player. So uh, we're in a co- competition to try and build the best team we can. It would uh, be silly of us to reveal information that, um, you know, we think is a competitive advantage to us, uh, in order to help our competitors make a decision that will help them contend with us better. I mean, I don't, you know, if you're trying to win a competition, your goal isn't necessarily to be fair, it's, uh, to not cheat, right? So the, the ethical <laughs> bar is to not do something illegal, not to make sure that everyone is running as fast as possible and to like pull them along with you to help catch up. Do you, <clears throat> So at what point was it revealed that um, was it revealed that Kemp had arthritic hips? Uh, I think he had multiple MRIs while they were working. Because that trade was like um, three okay. weeks in progress or something. That was a very long, drawn out. Uh, he got a whole bunch of different looks from different doctors, right. and uh, that's why that trade took so, so the long. Padres to can, they can perform a physical. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Then they had their own doctors look at Kemp. It wasn't just they were relying on the Dodgers' word. Right. And they still, even with this knowledge, they they still proceeded. Yeah. Okay. They should not they have should, done that. It, it would appear as though. No, they should. It did not appear. This was a disaster. I think it's always Padres. safer to yeah. couch it. I don't want to make any strong yeah, no. statements, Dave Cameron. I'm going to make a strong statement and say that Yasmani Grandal, obviously a better player than Matt Kemp. Okay. Uh, Yasmani Grandal, yeah. Yeah. And and yep. for- money Grandal actually good and cheap and under team control for a while uh, at reduced prices. And for that Matt matter, Kemp? probably no. um, you know uh, Jock Peterson, Scott Van Slyke, uh, Alex Guerrero also all better than Matt Kemp. Possible? I don't know about Alex Guerrero uh, and Van Slyke might be roughly as good, uh, but right, Yasiel Puig is certainly better yeah. and Jock Peterson is certainly better and Andre Ethier is probably not that much worse, especially in a platoon with Guerrero or Van Slyke. Cause like the combination of their outfield is not any worse without Matt Kemp and they're catching uh, dramatically upgraded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> here's uh, all right. Well, back to the question of Tuki Toussaint. This is uh, the, the current front office, right? Is one that. Uh, was l- largely um, um, arranged, collected, hired uh, during this past off season. Is that right? Yeah, Tony Larusa came in last year, and then uh, over the winter, after uh, a lot of <laughs> they tried to recruit a lot of different people, and they ended up hiring a lot of different people. Uh, Larusa kind of built Dave Stewart and uh, uh, a large front office of people that they are comfortable with, uh, who are you know. Maybe a little bit more old school than everyone else. Is there a, is there any sort of uh, I do suppose for them if you were to speculate wildly or generally is there a symbolic because this was the first round pick of the of the previous regime. I mean is that yeah I mean that must have yeah, something to do probably, with it right. 
it probably plays into the fact that, you know, they probably wouldn't have drafted this guy if they were in charge. But you don't necessarily want to come in and just be like, we're signaling a regime change by getting rid of anyone who was acquired previously. I mean, they didn't acquire Paul Goldschmidt. They're not getting rid of him, <laughs> right? So I think, uh, you know, as long as you're happy with the player, you keep him. But it does seem like uh, this is not the kind of player that they're particularly high on. And uh, so they didn't have an attachment to him, and they didn't necessarily feel like they needed to keep him just because someone, you know, the previous regime drafted him last June. Right. Okay. When you said that this is not the type of player, what sort of type of player is that, do you think? That the Diamondbacks like? Yeah. It's, it seems like they really, I mean, it's, it's weird. So like when in collecting pitchers this offseason, they seem to place a very high premium on velocity. So Wade Miley was exchanged for Ruby De La Rosa and Alan Webster, who both throw much harder. Uh, Wade Miley hasn't been great in Boston, but there are reasons to believe that he, you know, going forward, he's a better pitcher than either of the two guys they acquired. Um, and it seems like, you know, they signed Yohan Lopez for a lot of money. Uh, Archie Bradley was basically rushed to the major leagues for no good reason other than he throws hard. Um, I think there's uh, a decent amount of evidence that the Diamondback throwers, but Tugi Tzat is a hard thrower. So uh, how... He doesn't fit into what they like. I don't think we really know. I mean, I will say that his performance so far in the minor leagues is not is not good. I mean, this is a, a guy who's still uh, entirely uh, projection and what he could be, and not uh, he's not performing well. And it's possible that Stewart and some of their player development people went and saw him and just said, "Look, you know, this isn't what we thought we were getting, or this isn't what we thought we had. This doesn't look very good." Um, and perhaps they're reacting to uh, the fact that he's not performing well in the minor leagues right yeah. now. Yeah, no, it should be noted, and I don't know if this is uh, very helpful information, but the D-backs this year did not draft a high school player uh, until the 12th round, which was their 12th yeah. pick. So They might be a more short-term oriented. I mean, I think one of the things Larusa said over the offseason uh, is he wasn't interested in a five-year rebuilding. He wanted to win sooner, maybe not this year, but maybe next year. I think... If, if we're going to look at this as a kind of an entirety of a trade, there's probably some other deal down the line that they're hoping to make with this $10 million in savings that will bring them a player that they think can help their roster next year. I think at the end of the day, we're probably going to look at this as like not that different from Tuki Toussaint for a rent-a-player uh, or maybe a short ter- shorter-term control guy who they'll have next year who they think can fit into the roster. Maybe it's a catcher that they could, you know, badly need. Um, maybe it's someone to help their bullpen. I don't think they'll, they'll acquire someone with the money they just saved, and this will eventually turn into Toussaint for a veteran uh, in, the, in the kind of trade that would be, you know, maybe 2020 for 2016. Right. Well, that's – and I was going to ask you about that because um... – I don't, I, forget, I don't know what the precise term was, but something along the lines of short-term financial relief, you know, or financial uh, flexibility, flexibility maybe. gain. Yeah, that's what Tucson was. But I guess it makes more sense when you phrase it like that because, as you note in your in your post, uh, the Diamondbacks are about to about to enter, have recently entered a, a, a quite a profitable television deal. And so you would not necessarily conceive of them as a club that was uh, desperate to save $10 million if it meant that uh, they had any sort of um, reasonable hope in the the uh, success of that prospect. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the weird things. Is we've seen the Diamondbacks operate in like somewhat bipolar ways uh, uh, this year, especially in, say, the last six months, right? So like uh, they spent a lot of money on Yosemite Tomas, and they spent a lot of money on Yo- um, Yoan Lopez, and, uh, you know, have, as, at times uh, been... Uh, on players that, you know, 
prices that other people didn't think they were worth. And I think Lopez specifically uh, doesn't look like as good a prospect to most people as Toussaint, and they paid $16 million uh, when you include the tax to sign him and surrender the rights to the largest international bonus pool in next year's class, uh, which could have been uh, you know, a bonanza for them. Is that opportunity cost, Cameron? Is that what that's called? Yeah, that, that's an opportunity cost. They lose the opportunity to go sign maybe two or three elite international prospects, uh, and now they either have to sign a whole bunch of guys for $250,000 or less uh, or sell off that money and, and try and basically just loan it to people who can use it, uh, or not necessarily loan, but like trade it to people who can use it or to teams who can use it. So the the Lopez deal might have cost them closer to twenty million dollars when you look at the value of uh, you know being able to sign top prospects. Uh, and if you say, okay, well, if they thought this kind of you know not elite pitching prospect was worth twenty million dollars back in February, why is Toussaint only worth ten million dollars now? They have to be really down on him uh, in order to think this is what he's worth. Uh, and you know, in in terms of how they're going to use that $10 million, it's not clear that, you know, you say, okay, next year they save four and a, four and a half million dollar on, uh, Arroyo's buyout. So that helps them. They'll have a little bit more payroll room next year. But what are they going to use the five and a half million that they saved this year on? It's the middle of the season. There aren't any free agents. Like, they're not contenders. They shouldn't be going to absorb, you know, Jonathan Papelbon's contract from the Phillies or something. Uh, it's not clear why they needed to reduce their 2015 budget by five and a half million dollars or what that's going to help them do long term uh, unless they just budgeted poorly and their ownership decided they were running too high of a payroll in which case if if they can't budget well enough to run a run a team in the payroll on a you know a rebuilding team where they got rid of a lot of their veteran players they already traded mark trumbo and saved four million dollars there like how far over budget were they if that was if that was the need to dump five and a half million dollars off this year's payroll uh, in order just to to make ownership happy. Right. Uh, all right, let's talk more. Uh, we're switching gears here, which is a metaphor uh, for changing topics. Uh, car metaphor. That's it. I just wanted to say that the uh, uh, the, the the instance of uh, Haley Ramirez publishing the ball. Uh, Matt Corey wrote about it today for Fangraphs. Uh, I believe over the weekend at some point, Ken Rosenthal suggested that perhaps it made sense to trade them. Um, what uh, I think very reasonably Matt Corey suggests is that regardless of whether you keep them or you trade them, they are going to be – the fact that they were signed to, to uh, relatively large contracts over the offseason is going to continue to be a problem for a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, so I like Ken Rosenthal a lot. Uh, you know, I, I know him a little bit, a really good guy. Uh, I will note that – uh, his profession is essentially trade rumor guy. Uh, you know, he lives off of, uh, beating people to scoops and getting information and, um, a lot of what he does, uh, is covering the trade market. So, from his perspective, getting back to the incentives, it's always a good idea for every team to be trading players all the time. I mean, like Ken Rosenthal would like it if there was a blockbuster trade every single day because it would make his job way better. Uh, so I think his incentives are a little bit different than the team's incentives, uh, where the Red Sox have to say, okay, we're trying to win games, not necessarily – uh, drive traffic for foxsports.com. Uh, and I think, you know, if you're looking at it from the Red Sox perspective, it's probably not time to just throw things, uh, and say, you know what? We screwed up. We have to just get rid of these guys whenever possible. Uh, you know, take all our good young talent in order to undo our mistakes. That said, you know, I wrote about this a little bit last week. I'm not really sure what they do with Hanley Ramirez for next year. 
because it seems like David Ortiz is probably going to come back. He has a vesting option that's most likely going to vest unless he gets hurt um, or fails his physical at the end of the year. Um, and, you know, Hanley Ramirez probably shouldn't be an outfielder next year. So what do you do with a guy when you have two DHs and one of them is like a franchise icon who doesn't want to go away? I don't uh, – you're in a problem. Now, listen, the last time – it seems the, the, the uh, what maybe four seasons ago now the last time five seasons ago the Red Sox um, spent quite a bit of money on free agents they paid both um, what Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford right yeah uh, Gonzalez I think had had one uh, had one good year with them and then Carl Crawford's sort of his entire tenure in Boston was it didn't not work out it didn't work out pretty well and then they made one of the largest trades uh, ever. I guess in terms of yeah. the amount of money that was changing hands, or in terms of amount of money owed. Um, th- this off season, uh, they spend quite a bit of money on free agents again. Uh, certainly in, in, a, in a very different way, though they spend a uh, high annual average value on short-term deals. So instead of doing like seven years and 140 million, like they did with Crawford and Gonzalez, they went four years and 90 million with Ramirez, or five years and 90 million with Sandoval, four years and 80 million with with Rick Porcello. So they spent more in terms of salary in order to get uh, shorter contracts. But now it looks like at least you know two or three months in. Uh, none of them look particularly astute. No, it doesn't. I mean, pa- Pablo Sandoval is is not really a nightmare at this point. He's just, he's not a star, right? Um, well, uh, I mean, he's making eighteen million dollars a year to be what like a, he's projecting out as a league average player. Uh, not, not great, and you know, a league average player who's um, probably on the decline given his body type. Like this is not you. You needed to get value at the front end because you expected the last couple of years of this Sandoval deal to not be great. And if you're not going to get value at the front end. Uh, this deal is going to work out very poorly. So what's the? Is there any explanation for the co- colossal misjudgment? It seems of the Red Sox front office. And can you remind me of a successful free agent signing they've had? So that just, or is that not a thing that exists? Uh, well, a couple of years ago, they basically went like seven for seven. They, that was the, like the year before they won the World Series. After they dumped Gonzalez, they signed uh, Shane Victorino, which was a you know a bonanza for them. Um, they signed uh, Koji Uehara, uh, who was excellent. Uh, they signed a whole bunch of guys. And like Johnny um, Gomes was, I think, decent. Yeah, Gomes was one of the, yeah, like a whole bunch of role players like Mike Napoli. Uh, they just like basically spread all of their money around, See, signed a whole bunch of mid-level free agents, and it went great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then ever since then, it's gone gone to hell. Well, and, you, and, and I don't know. Is that telling to some to some degree the fact that they signed, as you know, they signed maybe a bunch of mid-level free agents? I what you spread out the risk, I guess, is supposed to, as as addition to the upside, but uh, yeah. their investments in higher-profile free agents don't seem to have worked out particularly well. Yeah, but I think you could argue that even the guys they signed this offseason were kind of actually mid-level free agents, right? Like, so maybe Hanley Ramirez was a great hitter, but, you know, he was not a star based on, uh, being, unless you had like a really optimistic, uh, view of his out, transition to the outfield, uh, which has, you know, not occurred. Hanley Ramirez has been a disaster in the outfield. Um, so I think, you know, Hanley Ramirez, the outfielder, is probably, should have been looked at as an above-average player, not a star. Sandoval's kind of the same thing, not a superstar, but a you know solid above-average player. These guys aren't that different in overall production or expected overall production from Shane Victorino. They just paid twice as much to get them. Yeah. 
So what's gonna what's gonna happen? I mean, nothing. Nothing seems to be the most. I mean, I think you know they're they're not gonna do anything drastic this trade deadline. I could see this coming winter if Hanley Ramirez continues to be a just disaster in left field and ends the year with like a negative thirty five UZR or something, um, and shows no signs of improvement. I think that that's gonna be the key. Is like if he doesn't get any better at all in the outfield in the second half. I think they're going to have to realize they can't come back with him as their left fielder next year. And then you have to make a decision. Do you try and convert him to first base? And for the second consecutive year, try to teach Hanley Ramirez how to play a new position when he seems somewhat indifferent about learning to play defense. Uh, and, you know, that, that's a possibility. Mike Napoli is a free agent at the end of the year. They could just let him leave, move Hanley to first base. Problem solved, uh, except for the fact that you have to hope that Hanley Ramirez can play first base. Uh, he, he and must then you have go hands, with right? He must have hands. Good hands. He does. Yeah. I mean, you would think that Hanley Ramirez should have the physical abilities to be a good left fielder too. I mean, like there's, uh, there's plenty of things to look at and be like, this guy was a major league shortstop for almost a decade. He should be able to play anywhere on the field except catcher. Right. But uh, you know, at least not embarrassingly, he wouldn't be a good center fielder. But he should, if you're a, if you're a shortstop, you shouldn't be able to, you know, be, you shouldn't be a disaster in left. You shouldn't be a disaster in right. You shouldn't, you know, you should be able to play second and third, at, you know, at least at a reasonable level. And first should be easy. Like you should be able to stand there and catch the ball and move laterally. Um, but it's not clear that Ramirez is um, interested enough in defense in order to be good at these things. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to say, Dave Cameron. Yeah, I mean, I think the. The one thing I will say that I think the Red Sox probably their biggest mistake, and you know, like I'm not going to kill them for their offseason because I thought a lot of these moves were fine, and I like the short-term uh, approach to things, and so it's not like we're going to say, okay, after two months this was obviously the wrong call. These things could mostly turn around. Uh, it's too early to just say that the entire offseason was um, just totally uh, a disaster, but I don't think that. So I think the one thing they, they did most wrong was they didn't give themselves any outs, like. They said, basically, Ramirez is our left fielder, and we're not going to have anywhere else to stick him if this doesn't work, right? Like, they didn't give themselves the flexibility of saying, we're going to try this, and if it doesn't work, we're going to do this. We're going to have a plan B. Like, with signing Sandoval and Ramirez and saying, okay, now we have, uh, you know, we've basically taken third base away, which is where a lot of people thought Ramirez was going to go. Uh, you know, we've kind of blocked him off and said, like, this has to work. And so if you're going to experiment with a guy like Hanley Ramirez, I think you want to have an alternative option in place, which it doesn't seem the Red Sox left them the ability to do, at least not this year. Uh, Pablo Sandoval and Hanley Ramirez signed for uh, millions of dollars per year with the Boston Red Sox. Uh, Chris Young signed this offseason with the Royals for less than a million dollars a year. 650 grand. Yeah. I mean, there's incentives in there, so he'll make more than that by the end of the season, but 650,000 guaranteed. Yeah, and... Uh, he is a league, league minimum is five hundred thousand, so like almost league minimum. He 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 continues to be, I'm not going to say a, necessarily a difficult player to evaluate, but he he has a bit of a mystery in that, um, as you know, in a piece that you were for uh, just a bit outside last week, um, he essentially profiles unlike any player, and this is not even you don't have to be predictive about it at all. Just look at like it's nearly his last decade of major league performance. In that he he just doesn't allow hits uh, at the same rate that other pitchers do on on batted balls. Yeah, I mean it's not so much that Chris Young is hard to understand; it's that the models that work for most every other player in Major League Baseball—not all, but most, like ninety-eight percent or something—they don't work for Chris Young. Like using FIP to evaluate Chris Young is silly. 
because Chris Young is the outlier of the outliers uh, among starting pitchers. There's relievers who can do this kind of thing when only facing you know three or four batters at a time. But as a starting pitcher working six or seven innings or five innings, because Chris Young is not generally the healthiest guy in the world, uh, no one that we've seen for quite a while has been able to um, – uh, generate this many infield flies. That's his main skill. As he pitches at the very top of the zone, he's a pop-up machine. Um, but also on outfield flies, he gets really weak outfield fly contact as well. Um, so, you know, like over his career, uh, his batting average of balls in play is like 250, and over like the last eight years, it's like 240, uh, when the general range is like 280 to 320, or 275 to 325, or something like that. He's not anywhere close to the general range uh, which means that we just can't use uh, the same tools to evaluate him as we can for most other pitchers. Right. The, is there a way – now, there are obviously there are some physical peculiarities to Chris Young. Uh, one of them is that he's six – He's very he's tall. He's very tall. And yeah. uh, despite the fact that he's very tall, he also does not throw very hard. Um, actually, I think he's actually yeah, throwing which, a little bit harder this year than he has in the past, but – yeah, he's back up to 86 instead of yeah, 85. Yeah. But he used to throw 90. I mean, he didn't always throw this soft. But I do think, like, when I was writing the piece, I was realizing, uh, I think Randy Johnson is, like, the only super tall, hard-throwing guy we've ever seen, right? Like, I think, we, you know, Johnson was so tall and so good that I think we just all assumed, like, oh, he's tall, so therefore must be like tall guys can throw harder because they have longer legs or something. I'm not sure what the physics involved would be. But then you see, like, almost every other six, seven or taller guy is, like, John Halama and Jeff Juden and Chris Young. Mark Hendrickson? And, uh, yeah, Mark Hendrickson. Yeah. Um, you know, they're just not hard throwers. It doesn't seem to be, and maybe it's just because there's so few of them that, like, it's rare to throw 95 and it's rare to be 6'10", so you're just really not going to get a guy who's 6'10 and 95 that often. Um, yeah, but maybe but every like guy the, over, like, 6'9 six, like six, or above can throw at least 85 just because they're giant people. Yeah, and then if you're you're getting that much extension and you're releasing the ball that close to the plate, you're selecting like maybe if Chris Young was well, not maybe if Chris Young was six one, he wouldn't be a major league pitcher. <laughs> he's only in the big leagues because he's six ten or at least over six six or something. Um, and his success is based on the fact that he's tall, not the fact that he throws major league quality pitches. Uh, he has good location and he he manages to release the ball like twelve feet from the plate, uh, which is a good combination. But yeah, so like I think we get some of these guys who are you know, only in the big leagues because they're giants, not because they have major league stuff. Is there a way, I, I, don't, I think Matt Sports actually himself has done work on apparent as opposed to absolute velocity. I think that was Eric Seidman. Yeah, maybe it was Eric Seidman. Okay, fine. Yeah. Both of them from Philly. Sure. And both of them have written for Fangas and Baseball Prospectus. True. So a, and they both. That's probably why you got them con- Surnames uh, begin confused. with S. Uh, true. Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah, so fine. Eric Simon did the work. That's great. Is there any way uh, he had to? I think he had to do a bit in the way of uh, mathematical gymnastics, gyrations, gyrations. The uh, that that I no one's really no one. I'm not ready to to do that. But do you think there'd be an easy way to do it just by looking at the I don't know, like some simple pitch effects data and then a guy's height or something like that. Well, you don't, so height is a proxy, but you don't necessarily care about height. And like, so Ben Lindbergh actually wrote a piece at Grantland that ties into this really nicely last week, where he wrote about the highest perceived velocities, which is something that TrackMan can actually track, 
uh, you know, using their radars that Pigeon didn't track previously. Um, and Carter Caps, who's not tall, but jumps toward the plate like a super tall guy. So he's landing at the very front of the mound, has the highest perceived velocity oh. of any pitcher in Major League Baseball. He also throws 96 or 97 or something. So he, it looks like it's 102 because he's releasing the ball so close to the plate. So you don't care about height. You care about release point, really. And I think, uh, what we've seen with perceived velocity is it's generally what you're trying to do is just standardize at what point along the plot of, you know, the pitcher's mound and the plate, where are you tracking the velocity, right? So, like, um, it used to be 45 or 50 feet. Well, I think it started out at 45 or 55 when PitcherFX was experimenting, and eventually they settled on 50 feet is where they would measure the velocity of the ball, and that's what has been recorded in PitcherFX uh, terminology, and those are the numbers we're used to. But if, if you pick it up at 55 feet, which Brooks Baseball does, um, then you're going to get higher numbers because the, if the ball is closer to the uh, pitcher's hand and it you know hasn't had time to slow down yet, essentially the, the process of deceleration hasn't kicked in uh, as heavily. So um, it's really dependent on where along the path you're measuring the velocity of the pitch will determine your you know, kind of the velocity that you're reporting. And if you're a guy like Carter Caps and you're releasing the ball, uh, you know at the 53 or 52 or 51 foot mark, whatever it is. Um, you're essentially, your initial velocity is going to be the same thing as someone else's velocity after it's slowed down by two miles an hour. Yeah, it, I actually, uh, I've, uh, in a clandestine fashion, I've gone over to Lindbergh's post. Uh, and yes, you're, uh, you're right. It, it appears the car caps it, but an extension, an extension of over eight feet from the, from right. the mound. Yeah. And not surprisingly. Because he's like yeah. leaping at you when he throws the ball. And not surprisingly, uh, Jordan Walden is second and yeah. he has a similar sort right. of uh, hitch. Right. Uh, it seems like jumping forward uh, uh, can help you if you can, you know, not blow out your knee a curious, and throw strikes. A curious uh, pitcher in fourth is Yusmero Petit, um, who's neither very tall. Uh, who's not? Well, I shouldn't. Neither very tall. You wouldn't think of him as very tall. Nor, I guess, nor does he jump. But he uh, right. he has an extension uh, that's higher, which may help him, despite the fact that he doesn't actually throw the ball very hard. Yeah, a stride length seems to be a thing that a pitcher can control. I mean, I think we saw early career Tim Lincecum, right, was like basically doing lunges when he would throw the ball to the plate. Uh, and then you see other guys who barely move their front leg at all and are, you know, almost kind of what they call tall and fall guys um, who aren't really striding forward and aren't using their legs as much. And they're basically just using their arm in order to get their velocity. Um, so I think uh, a guy like Petit probably just has an extraordinarily long stride relative to most pitchers. Mm-hmm. And relative to, I don't know. I always, I always pictured him as short. Did you picture him as short? Yeah, but you can be short and still have. A, I mean, Tim Lincecum short and had a very long stride. Yeah, like right. you can uh, just stretch your leg out a little bit further and, uh, you know, maybe have the stride of a six-three guy. And even if you're five yeah. eleven. All right. Well, that's great. That's great too. That's great too. Great stuff. You're almost done, Dave Cameron. Oh wait, no. One, one thing. It with regard to the Chris Youngs. Is there a way? Do you think there must be some of these pitchers? Who have been, who have gone unidentified, right? Who have uh, slipped through the cracks? They they're the one. They're the sort who, you know, like Chris Young, could maybe uh, uh, induce more in the way of infield fly balls. Uh, and yet, because of uh, for other reasons, because it takes you know, because it takes a while for this sort of uh, stat to become reliable, um, then they must have gone overlooked. Yeah, so I wonder, like, uh, my guess would be the guys who could have been the next Chris Youngs are playing basketball, right? Like, there's a, uh, a high demand for six foot ten athletes, 
uh, in professional basketball. It, this is a very valued skill in that sport, where it's not really valued that much in any other sport. I can't, I, there's no 6'10 hockey player. That would be awkward. Uh, and even in football, I think, like, once you get over, like, 6'7", you know, they just, like, well, what do you do with you? If you're an offensive lineman, you're just in the way, and then the quarterback can't see anything. Right. If yeah. you're a 6'10 wide receiver, that could be neat, except you're probably slow and gangly and not fast enough to get open. And so, like, um, I would imagine that all of the guys – or most of the guys who could be super tall, good major league pitchers are, you know, uh, small forwards or power forwards in the NBA. Yeah, that's right. Or maybe in Europe. Of course, Mark Hendrickson actually did play in the NBA. Right. Hendrickson is maybe <laughs> the best example of a guy who, like, vacillated between the two sports and was like, well, I'm not great at either of these. I'll just try both. Kind of, yes. Well, he did both, though. He did do both. Yeah. Yeah. He had just enough athleticism to do both. Yep. Or the sorts of athleticism. All right, last. And Chris Young, you know, played basketball at Princeton in college, I believe. Oh, yeah, that's so right. he, yeah. he could have potentially been a, you know, professional basketball player, maybe not an NBA player, but he probably could have played in Europe. Which, by the way, that is a, that is among the consolation prizes. To me, Playing that is Europe? one of the yeah. best. Yeah. No, right. I mean, I think it depends on, uh, you know, uh, how much of a world traveler you are. I mean, I have some friends who, uh, you know, only like to eat very specific American things where maybe you're like, oh, living in a, you know, foreign country and eating weird things, maybe not be at their top of their list. But for someone who's, uh, spent time in split Croatia, like you have and loves to travel, this might be, uh, not a bad life. Yeah. Do you remember Josh Childress? I do remember Josh Childress. Yeah. Well, he played for, he couldn't shoot to save his life. Right. But he had other virtues as a player. Yeah. He was a good defender. Right? And yeah, I think he was a good defender and I think he had like, he was pretty efficient at the hoop. Right, because he couldn't shoot. Well, sure, so he, but he got to yeah. – anyway, point being, <clears throat> he was a Stanford guy, right? And so you yeah. think, well, here's someone who, just by virtue of that, is probably probably more willing to uh, embrace uh, uh, international travel. He's a liberal is what you're saying. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. <laughs> that's, the, that's the term you're looking no, no, for. No, 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 more you're internationally minded. Black job. There, is this, you're, you're attacking all people from Stanford and labeling them as uh, I know, you know, Euro- he's, European socialists. He's probably more – well, he, 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 he's uh, – Stanford has high standards. I think they do at least. I mean for athletes. I even Didn't still. Eno Saris go there? Yeah, but isn't Eno – like can you imagine him being the sort of person who is actually book smart as opposed to whatever the other <laughs> – what all whatever all the other intelligences are? No. Are there like seven of them? Are there seven discrete? Eno you know, is very clearly a smart guy, but you don't get that from hanging out with him. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's weird how he always, he always has his uh, – he carries his SAT scores around with him. I think that's strange. Like in his wallet? It's like instead of a baby picture? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he says, uh, forget about my kids. Here are my SAT scores. Like, from now. He's a laminated SAT yeah, scores? Yeah, he, he did. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm lying. Anyway, Josh Childress has, has had a successful career in Europe. Even uh, if, by choice or because he couldn't well, shoot? Well, he played for the Hawks a bunch, and then I think he was just given at one point a better contract or equivalent contract in Europe, and he went there. And now uh, he's actually cu- he actually came back to the NBA for a couple of years, and now uh, it appears to be, be playing in Australia now, where they speak English, actually. But it is a different country. He's got a work visa, so there you go. Yeah, there we go. Six. I guess, uh, if, you know, if I could choose to live in Australia or live in Atlanta, I might choose Australia. Yeah. <laughs> It's really hot in both places. I'll say Is that. It, yeah. Have you been to Australia? No, but I'm not that far from Atlanta, and it feels like the middle of the desert. Yeah, I don't think I don't think I don't think Sydney's in the middle of the desert. I think it's 
It's okay. a harbor well, town. Well, most of Australia is quite yeah, hot. Yeah, the parts where no one lives is Dave Cameron. Okay, well, in the American South, we live here, and it's really quite yeah, it's hot. because I those people say, like, made a mistake. Yeah, I'm one of those people who's made a yes, mistake. Yes, you made a mistake. <laughs> I now know why land is cheap and no one lives here. It is uh, 100 degrees every day, has been for like a month, and will be for the next three. It's terrible. Has it really been? Is it, it's pretty it's, humid. Too. Like, you look at the weather, and it's like 99, 98, 100, 99. And that's like not counting the humidity. The other day, I looked at my uh, weather underground app on my phone, and it was like 7 p.m., and it's like feels like 106. Oh. I'm like, where do we live? Why why are we here? By the way, the 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 weather underground app or wonderground.com, you know, where you can find it is uh what a great app. It's very Yeah, it's really 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 nice. Yeah, it's very easy to use. I enjoy it very much. Uh last thing, uh do you you uh, you made an offhanded comment? Uh, I, I do that sometimes. With regard to uh Jose Tabata after he uh <laughs> I had not realized I was not watching the game and I had not realized the situation, as well, I said, well, let's go look at it. And it was what? It was a 2-2 count with two outs in the bottom or in the, what, the top of the ninth of a of a perfect yeah. game, right? Yeah. Max Scherzer was one strike away from a perfect game. And he threw a ball. He threw a slider that was on the inside corner that hit Tabata's elbow pad. Mm-hmm. It didn't even hit his body. It hit the armor he was wearing mm-hmm. that was not very far from the strike zone. Right. Now, isn't it is – it, okay. It's, it's Jose Tabata. You were mentioning in terms of competitive advantages with regard to the Dodgers. It's um, Jose Tabata's job to get on base, to yes. help score runs. Correct. It's the umpire's job to uh, regulate the actions of the players in the field. You know. Correct. Yes. So – isn't it? Isn't it really the umpire? If there's any sort of question of uh, foul play here, isn't it the umpire as opposed to Tabata? Yeah, I mean, I guess we we should give a little context here because uh, I'm guessing a lot of people listening to the podcast uh, either don't don't have Twitter or didn't see the tweet or you know wisely don't follow me on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, I made I made a uh, what I thought was a, an obvious attempt at a joke that uh, people. Uh, did not interpret as a uh, as humor, and uh, so I said, you know, like I'm not okay with throwing at players in general, but I'm okay with throwing at Jose Tabata tomorrow. Uh, and you know, people, like, I think, took it as like, I was calling for him to get beamed in the head or something. Uh, yeah, I, like my intention and the interpretation of the tweet were two very different things. Uh, I do was not calling for Jose Tabata to get you know beamed. Uh, I thought I thought it was a, a pretty obvious joke, but uh, yeah, I mean I think you're right. Nothing wrong with what Tabata did. It sucked for us, the viewer, and probably for Max Scherzer, who still got a no header out of it. But uh, yeah, Tabata didn't do anything wrong. The rules are silly, and if you can hang over the strike zone with a big piece of armor and get hit on it and not have to move out of the way, you know the umpire should have not awarded him for space probably. Uh, but you know from Tabata's perspective, he didn't do anything. Wrong. Is there a uh, is there is that a subject to replay? I don't think so. I think that's the uh, umpire discretion, and they like they just never call that. I mean, like if you get if any piece of your jersey or uh, something that's attached to you, shoestring, whatever, gets struck with the baseball, they're giving you first base no matter mm-hmm. what. Mm-hmm. 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 All right. I imagine it's probably just very difficult to be trying to determine whether a pitch is a ball or a strike, and then also determine intent to get out of the way. Like this is just like a maybe too much to ask an umpire to yeah, do. Yeah, that's a lot. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know how you stare at a point to try and determine whether a ball crossed into that point while it was crossing the threshold of the plate, and then also be watching the player to see if he moved. Like that's, I don't, I don't know how you do that. Lot of stuff. Lot of stuff. All right, you did it. You did. It. You did it, Dave Cameron. Hooray! Hooray! You've done it. Uh, congratulations. Uh, thank you for joining us on Fangraphs Audio. Thanks for having me. Right, that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.